0: Lord, Lord, the nature of your kiss The nature of the wilderness We're all made to walk Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path But I'm willing to trust I'm dying in the dust. Welcome to the Fellow Traveller podcast. I'm your host Peter Lespronce. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition and beyond. Enjoy and safe traveling. Hello my fellow travelers. Thanks so much for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you would like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash Morning Sun underscore fellow traveler, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you. Well, we have a very special guest today. The infamous Shane Claiborne, Public <laughs> Enemy number one. Just Good kidding. to be with you, man. Good to be with you. <laughs> Shane Claiborne, where are you right now? Are you in Philly?
1: Just got back to Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I, man, I had an w- incredible weekend. I got to spend it in Atlanta with uh, the King Center and Dr. Bernice King celebrating. Wow. Martin Luther King would have been 94 years old, I think, this weekend. So we were celebrating his birthday and life and Miss Coretta Scott King. So, man, it was a beautiful time in Atlanta.
0: That is so cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on The Fellow Traveler. Um, I never imagined that I'd be talking to someone like you, but here I am, you know. (laughs) I just put myself up there, and here we are. Pretty sweet.
1: Man, yeah, we're all finding our way together. So uh, I'm glad to be with a Fellow Traveler, man. It's good to meet you. Make some (laughs) new friends. Thanks, everybody, for listening in.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Shane, I mean – You are really become well known for, you know, standing up for justice and, um, and you're also the author of some excellent books like Jesus for president, irresistible revolution and Shane, I mean, uh, yeah. Tell us a little about a little bit about, um, actually, no, let's just, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just start with your, your spiritual heritage, um, where did you, where did you begin in your faith? What tradition did you grow up in and what did that look like? Uh, and were there any experiences within that, that uh, really rooted you in the faith and um, you know, you can share as much as or as little as you'd like to. Uh, yeah, uh, dude.
1: well, I've, I've been shaped by several different flavors of Christianity, like mm-hmm. the different streams. I, my, I mean, my, a lot of my family were Southern Baptists uh, and, My mom and I are really tight. My dad died when I was uh, just turning nine years old. Um, And so mom and I have been a, quite a a team and everything. Uh, And she, she dipped into the Methodist church when I was, you know, in middle school and stuff and junior high. And uh, so that, that was where I first really began to hear about Jesus and um, went to a, youth event, you know, where they gave an altar call and invited us to dedicate our lives to Jesus. And that was very sincere for me. I I felt like I recognized, uh, Jesus as the son of God who died to heal the wounds of sin in the world and, you know, all that. And so, um, that was, that was really a beautiful beginning of, a um, my own spiritual, uh, journey. And then, you know, I got a little bored in the Methodist church. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they're not, they're not, there's many of them that have more fire. You know, the Methodist symbol is the fire on the cross. So there's, but, I, you know, I I wanted that Pentecostal fire. I wanted folks that believe that in miracles and believe that God is uh, still active in the world. And um, so I went to this Pentecostal church so I think some of my family was a little worried it was a cult it met in a like a like old warehouse you know <laughs> um, but I loved it man I feel like that's where I got re-baptized you know and um, they they did the full submersion under the water none of that little sprinkling stuff the Methodists do you gotta you gotta get wet man you gotta get underneath the water stuff. So, and but I also felt like that baptism of the holy spirit you know this idea that god is filling us with the spirit and we now are as jesus said going to do the same things that jesus did so we um i i got got that uh, that sort of fire in my bones um there were you know there were also some things that I, i feel like in every little um chapter of my own spiritual quest there's stuff that i've embraced and also some bones to spit out you know um there was there was a little bit of weird stuff you know in that in that uh wonder uh, amidst the wonderful fire of the pentecostal world i was in um and then you know i i think i held on to a lot of that but i also started going i don't think jesus just came to make believers but to form disciples you know and that this this like you read the sermon on the mount and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. I mean, all this, it really looked like it should have some real life implications, you know, and a lot of the church that I saw was uh, very, was kind of concentrating on life after death, but wasn't necessarily uh, looking at life before death, you know, and all the injustices of the world that we live in. uh, so, when you know, when Jesus says that we're to seek the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we're to pray, you know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just about kind of escaping this world, but rather like not, not just about going up when we die, but bringing God's dream down on earth while we live. Uh, and, and that's where I really began to um, uh, notice what Mother Teresa was doing and the missionaries of charity and and many you know catholic saints saint francis of assisi you know i looked at him in the 13th century and was like now there's a brother that seemed to, uh, <laughs> to you know to take it seriously and mother teresa too you know she she left everything to go to one of the toughest regions of the world in calcutta india so um that you know became sort of the next chapter was to i, I worked with mother teresa and really but more more than just the work in calcutta it was it was really beginning to think more deeply about prayer, um, more comprehensively about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, not just a believer and worshiper of Jesus, but what does it look like to reorient our whole life around Christ and and to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, what if he really meant the stuff he said? So that's kind of what happened to me next. And I've, I've been that sort of spiritual mutt. I can see all that. I can see the old... Methodist uh, uh, in me. I can see the charismatic Pentecostal stuff in me, the Catholic. So now I've seen a lot of life these days outside of the white evangelical church and a lot of the liberation um, uh, and charismatic uh, communities like the historic Black church, the kind of uh, Latino Pentecostal church that has roots in uh, some of the, the spirituality of folks like Oscar Romero and El Salvador and those so those kind of have also been a, a part of the fusion that formed, uh, that it's, for, you know, forming me these days.
0: Wow, that's cool. I mean, it is neat. And I notice this as like a common um, theme that the experiences and the traditions that we dip our toes in seem to be like little puzzle pieces in our journey and build us almost building blocks you know, if we were a building, you know, um, that's, that's kind of neat. And, you know, I'm sorry about to hear about your, your father passing away at nine. Did that, do you think that had a, a big effect on your spirituality?
1: Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it affected pretty much everything. Um, my dad had multiple sclerosis uh, MS, you know, and so he was <laughs> in a wheelchair. He was, um, uh, his health was not um, good, at, you know, at any point in in um my life so but i have great memories of him he he loved pinball so i would this is before you know video games were big and uh the old pinball machines dude i would sit on his lap and just uh rock it out playing pinball i've still got one of those pinball machines in my basement um but you know i think that there was that space that i felt um i love scriptures like god's the father to the fatherless uh, for who I was in that moment, that really, um, that that intimacy with God uh, uh, filled a real space of longing in my own soul, you know, and I, I felt a lot of love from my mom and from, you know, my grandparents, um, but there was, you know, I think there was a real um, personal side of God that I experienced, um, especially through some, you know, those pretty hard times in my my uh, like 10, 11, 12-year-old years.
0: Wow, that is pretty neat. Um, It does seem kind of ironic and interesting that it seems like the people to whom Jesus is most relatable is not the typical, like, like, you pick a picture like the normal life, the typical life, the typical person. It's not. That's not to whom Jesus is most relatable. Very interesting. Mm. But yeah, um, so you were in the Methodist church then you got involved in charismatic churches were there any experiences mystical experiences within those uh, churches that were notable that kind of like was like kind of woken you up
1: oh heck yeah man I mean I think we saw people healed I still believe that to this day you know Um, you know in the in the not that Methodists don't believe in miracles. I think a lot of these traditions have a a lot of diversity within them, you know? And I mean, gosh, the reason that they have the fire on the Methodist cross is John Wesley and the early Methodists had a real Pentecostal fire about them, you know? Um, And, uh, but, you know, when we prayed for people to be healed, I kind of think we, we, we sort of believed it could happen, you know, but when I got involved in the charismatics, we were like, we're going to pray right now. We're going to lay hands on this person. Like, uh, you know, and I and I really do believe we saw folks uh, healed. We saw spiritual warfare. You know, things that I didn't even have language for earlier before that. Um, but what's interesting, man, is some of those more mystical, transcendent experiences I also felt when I was in India. Um, Mother Teresa believed in miracles. Uh, she experienced them. You know, there's all kinds of stories of stuff that happened in India that. Um, had that's a real weird kind of Catholic charismatic side to it, you know? Uh, and so, um, yeah, so, so they, they kind of blend together a little bit, you know, and, and yeah. many, many years later I was in Iraq uh, during the war and some of the most mystical experiences I've ever had have been in those, what well, some people call thin spaces, you know, where there's a thin space between our current physical reality on earth and the sort of spiritual realm that we might call heaven or, you know, that, you know, that, that, that becomes a thin place. And, you know, when bombs were getting dropped on us and we're like in the middle of these moments where we're totally relying on God, uh, man, it was I've come to think that part of why we don't see many miracles is because we rarely live in ways that kind of rely on miracles, you know, and somebody gets sick, we go to the hospital, we get hungry, we go to the store. Uh, But a lot of the world is much, I think, um, more in tune with miraculous and supernatural because they, uh, their lives depend on it.
0: Yeah. Like when, when Jesus was saying, you know, ask, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. Um, I don't think he was saying it to people who are just sitting on their couches. I think he was saying it to people who are out in the trenches, you know, and that and that's why and it's very interesting. I, I like that perspective of, it's like the closer you are to death, the closer you are to God, <laughs> in a way. It's very interesting. But, um, yeah, so how the heck did you get involved with Mother Teresa? How did that happen? Wrote her a letter.
1: How, we wrote, wrote her a letter? we were 20 years old and young and naive enough to or innocent enough to uh you know no one had convinced us anything was impossible so she was still alive I mean she was quite old uh this is 1995 back in the 1900s and um wrote her letter and uh summer was approaching fast so we kept waiting on a response and didn't hear it so then we just we just started calling nuns and trying to get a hold of somebody that might connect us with the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa. And when we called India, she picked up the phone and, you know, I, I asked her if we could come work with her. And we had several friends that, uh, my college, you know, my colleagues that wanted to go. And so we went together, spent the whole summer in India, uh, working in the orphanages, the home for the dying, like all the things I had read about and seen pictures of, uh, there we were, and it was it was such um, such an incredibly uh, transformative experience. And I, I ended up going back, you know, to India after that. But um, yeah, that original summer where we were still, you know, sophomores in college and stuff, uh, it was it was huge. It was massive for
0: us. That's incredible. It's that simple. You just you just send a message out there and <laughs> see what happens. That, I mean, that must have taken a lot of faith to kind of uproot your life and go out.
1: Well, India. you know, you, you, the, I think one of the things about being young is you not, not to like put people in boxes too much. I know a lot of risk takers that are 80, 90 years old, but I mean, when you're young, you're ready to do things, man. I mean, we were just, we were, we had been lit on fire by this, uh, this sort of movement in Philadelphia, like where we were working with a lot of, families that were homeless. And so we, we had this kind of, you know, real, real fire inside of us. And so, uh, when we, when we called mother Teresa and, uh, you know, we said, can we come work with you? She said, come on out. And then, you know, I'm thinking like you, Peter, I'm like, cool. Well, where are we going to sleep? You know, what are we going (laughs) to eat? And I'll never forget. I asked her that. And she said, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you. Wow.
0: (laughs) that's incredible
1: and i was like great i'll tell my mom that when my mom's like wait wait, how are you gonna do this so my mom
0: would kill me if i did that (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious so so how was that um you know how how did it feel being like a protestant living amongst radical catholics in in india
1: well there were things that were really really different you know um but when you're, I find that like a lot of times we feel like we have all of these differences because we're in our heads too much. But when you're being moved by your heart and you've got your hands, um, you know, you're working together, uh, it, it really felt, I, I felt this kindred spirit, you know. Um, we, every day we're working in the um with with children you know some of them had been abandoned in train stations we were pulling people off the streets who were dying I mean literally dying and mother Teresa's home for the dying was for to make sure that someone has a person holding their hand as they take their last breaths and no one should die alone and so it was very you know holy work I mean but I mean I mean my head was spinning though you know I'm I'm you know i don't even think i was quite 20 years old you know i'm I'm there like just seeing things i had never experienced before but i mean i didn't know who was protestant or catholic or whether you know these folks i was working with were christians There or people from all over the world um and we were just doing this work together and it was such holy beautiful work um, we were one of my jobs peter became to uh uh to throw a street party for the kids that were homeless, you know, and these are like, some of these are 10 year old kids that are living on the streets. And that was my job. I think it was every Tuesday night, you know, is to get a bunch of these kids together. and We'd play games and, you know, uh, so, but every morning we would pray together and it was different at first, you know, because they were more liturgical prayers, prayers that are, you know, more familiar to Catholics, uh, But they were beautiful. I mean, one of the prayers that we prayed every morning was, uh, dear Jesus, let every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul. May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go. Leave off the fragrance of Jesus. And, you know, it's interesting, too. Every morning, Mother Teresa wanted to have communion. Uh, which I thought was sort of different, you know, growing up Methodist, she did it like once a month. And, uh, but she wanted it every single morning. And we were talking to one of the nuns about that. And she said, well, you've heard it said you are what you eat. And she's like, that's what we're praying. You know, like we really believe that when we, you know, do the Eucharist or we, we take communion that it's transforming us, you know, uh, that we the body of Christ we're praying would, permeate us the blood of Christ would ooze through our veins you know so that we might be able to say with Paul the life I live I no longer live but Jesus lives in me so man I mean these this was a a really powerful new way of thinking about prayer you know not just trying to get God to do what we needed God to do but trying to train you know to get ourselves to be who God wants us to be and that we were the ones being transformed by um, prayer and the Eucharist, and um, that's why you know, some of my evangelical friends they, 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 you know, heard we were in India and they're like, Well, you know, the Catholics don't really believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm like, mm. Actually, Mother Teresa called Jesus her lover, she called Jesus her spouse, right? I'm like, Yeah, doesn't get much more personal than that.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, seriously, no, it's funny, it is mind blowing because like the past few years i've gotten involved with some with the catholic worker movement a little bit and uh here in worcester massachusetts we have the mustard seed uh catholic worker and um and we're friends with some people in philadelphia as well but you know i grew up protestant obviously so it was interesting getting involved with these radical catholics um i thought we were going to be debating the implications of justification or something like that but we're not we're not at all it's like this (laughs) we're there we have so much in common and ultimately we all want to see the kingdom of God come to earth. And when I, when I engage with them, it's, 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 it's giving so much richness to my spirituality.
1: Yeah, um, man. Getting involved. There's, there's certainly things that, um, I question or have, you know, uh, some hesitations about in the Catholic theology and Mm world. Um, um, and and yet it's also true of many of the Protestant denominations. I, I think it was Stanley Hauerwas, uh, you know, the wonderful theologian that at one point said uh, every person should probably have two or three things that they question within their own tradition, but you don't want more than four or five, Stanley said, <laughs>
0: Makes things so, too complicated.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, I I think that no matter where we find ourselves in the landscape of Christianity, there's mm-hmm. there's probably a few things that uh, are still uh, yet to be um, discovered or, or fulfilled or changed. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, yeah, but I mean, for sure, I, yeah, I, I love it.
0: That's cool. So, so while you're in India, are there any notable experiences you had that, I mean, obviously I'm sure there was a ton, but is there any one that sticks out in particular, like that might've had some sort of mysticalness to it or just like, wow, that was really cool. Like just, that was really, I don't know. Anything that comes to mind?
1: Yo, man. I mean, it, it felt like every day was just rich with um, the spirit, you know? Um I mean, uh, holding people's hands as they they breathe their last breath, like um, almost every day, people would die in the home for the dying. Uh, and if they, if they actually got better, they went to the home for the sick. There was a different, you know, home that Mother Teresa started for folks that were maybe not imminently dying. Um, but when you go into the morgue in the home, there's a there's a place there where you know t- you take the bodies after they passed away. It says on the wall. I'm on my way to heaven. And then when you turn around, it says, thanks for helping me get here. <laughs> and my friend said, it feels like we're travel agents. <laughs> you know, try, trying to help people get from this world to the next. And uh, so really holy work. But, well, you know, I mean, one of the most unique experiences I had, too. So I, I worked there every day. But then there was a period where um, th- there was kind of a gap that one of the brothers, uh, the, the uh, the the you know religious men that were a part of the missionaries of charity uh he left and um and there was a a space available and and it was in a a village where um there were a group of about 300 families uh who had leprosy so they had skin diseases and they were they were ostracized um it's you know the caste system where where we even get the idea of being outcast um was such an oppressive system i mean if if you had like a leprosy then you couldn't go in public spaces restaurants or stores and so mother treats
0: that must make the bible really real to you you know like yeah dude, i, I mean you,
1: right you read these stories and i had heard you know um Uh, I I guess, in church history classes or whatever, you know, the stories that folks with leprosy would ring bells. So folks would, you know, stay away so that they wouldn't bump into anyone or touch them. And I mean, that was how stigmatizing this was. And so Mother Teresa obviously had a different set of eyes. And she said, these people are precious children of God. And um, we need to create a life-giving, loving space for them uh, to live. And so she got this tract of land donated along the train tracks, and that's where I, I stayed uh, for this, this little, uh, it's like a week or two. And um, so these families, you know, I mean, my goodness, they, they had created a village where they raised their own food, and they had a fish hatchery, they, they had a wood shop. Where they would create prosthetic arms and legs because uh, the disease affected you in such a way that you there was amputation was very normal with and so they would custom make an arm or a leg out of wood. Um, they had a medical clinic there. They had a school, so it was amazing, you know. Um, and uh one day in particular, I'll never forget that there's a man who um, was being treated and. I was in the medical clinic. My usual job was to roll cotton balls. So all this cotton that they had grown, I would roll it and they were using it, um, you know, as bandages and uh, to treat each other. And, but one of the guys, the doctors, all of the doctors had leprosy and they had been treated. So now they were sort of, you know, healing, healing other people. But one of them left and he, you know, grabbed me and said, can you, can you take my spot? And this was really different you know it was, and it was a little outside I, I was I, I didn't speak Bengali or Hindi and so I was really even just the cultural barriers were tricky um, but I had been watching intently you know and so I did I just kind of jumped right in and started treating this man and I'll never forget I mean you talk about mystical this was an experience where as I'm treating this elderly man I'm treating his wound and i um, doing the best I can you know it's basically uh, sort of, it almost looks like an acid. You know, it's just eating away at his skin, and I'm I'm kind of treating it. And um. And he looks me at me, and he's he's just smiling, and he says Namaste, which is a very holy word. And um, one of the guys explained it to me, and he said, "I'm sure you've heard the word, but do you know really what it means? Do you know what he's trying to tell you?" And I said, "No, tell me." And he said, "The word means." the holy one in me honors the holy one in you he said there's not a great translation into English but it's one of the most beautiful words and it just means like you know the image of God in me recognizes the image of God in you and we just stared at each other and I felt like I wasn't just looking into the eyes of some poor leper in Calcutta but I was looking into the eyes of Jesus um and and I also had this sense that maybe he isn't just seeing some, you know, rich kid from do gooder, you know, kid from America, but maybe he can see Jesus in me, you know. And going back to that prayer that we're praying every morning, that someone would catch a little glimpse of Jesus in us, that we would leave off the fragrance of Jesus uh, in the world. So um, that that was one of those. Thin spaces, man. Where I, I felt like I had really encountered Jesus, and I'm, I knew a little bit more deeply, you know, profoundly what Mother Teresa meant when she said, "When we see the poor, we see Jesus in his most distressing disguises." So when Jesus says, "You know, when when I was sick, did you take care of me?" Mm. I mean, I kind of literally felt like I yeah uh, he wasn't just messing around when he said that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: it's beautiful. Wow, that's super cool. I really love it a lot uh there's not much i can say about it i just like take that for what it is people but anyway um how about you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now i i saw recently you've uh launched raw tools right
1: yeah man well first of all we've been on the north side of philly for 25 years we just celebrated this is kind of feels surreal but uh 20 you know a quarter of a century. Uh, you've probably barely been alive that long, Peter, but um, <laughs>
0: um, I'm going to be 30 this year. <laughs>
1: there you go. You were five years old when we started Simple Ways. So that's pretty awesome. But, you know, we were I mean, we weren't that old. You know, we were coming out of college, just returned from India. And we had had this experience where um, poor and homeless families, mostly mothers and children, had moved into an abandoned Catholic church. It's just a around the corner from where I am now and um, it it had really brought uh, uh, been sort of a catalyst for this student solidarity movement but we then started reading about the early church in the book of Acts how everyone shared their possessions in common no one claimed any of their their um, uh, possessions were their own you know and so that vision we was part of what inspired us. We bought this little place across the street where I I live across the street from where the simple way started. And we've, it's turned into a, a village, you know, over the last 25 years. And, um, you mentioned the Catholic worker movement and, um, it was as we started here that we became aware of other movements like the Catholic workers and the large community, different monastic orders, uh, folks like coinonia Farm down in Georgia, uh, all these different communities that began to sort of inspire and shape us. And um, uh, so that's, that's what we've been up to. And, you know, over the years, there's a few things that we've been passionate about. Um, Mother Teresa used to say, what's important is not how much you do but how much love you put into doing it. We're not called to do great things, but we're called to do small things with great love. So, you know, above our door for years, the simple way uh, there's been a sign that says, uh, today let's do small things with great love. And what's important isn't, you know, how many bags of food we give out, but how much love uh, people feel as they receive that. You know, do we feel people's dignity um do people feel their own dignity as they're they're receiving things that they need um and it also means to us that we're interrupting the injustices uh so we're not just doing charity work um we're doing that compassionate work you know of of dorothy day the, the work of hospitality but we're also doing the work of justice so uh just as we're giving people food we're asking why people are hungry to begin with um one of my mentors said that uh We've all heard the cliche, you know, you give someone a fish to eat for a day, you teach someone to fish to eat for the rest of their life. But uh, he said, uh, Dr. Perkins says, we've also got to ask who owns the pond. You know, we've got to do something about the inequities in the world. Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, he said, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to do something about the whole road to Jericho yeah so, oh my yeah, goodness that's
0: a that's a great point and also not everybody has a fishing pole you know
1: <laughs> yeah right or it doesn't matter if you if you can get to the pond if the pond's polluted you know i mean we're if, if, if the fish make you sick so i mean this is very comprehensive work the you know caring for the earth and healing uh the way that we've sort of exploited creation um the inequities you know all that so that's always been a part of who we are um and a part of that, you know, has been addressing gun violence uh, and the death penalty and so many of these, you know, intersectional issues. But um, we are at I mean, as a country, gun violence is 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 a public health crisis. you know, I mean, we kind of experience that every day uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, and 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 really, what happened for me is a nineteen year old, was shot on our front steps, and that was a moment where I said, you know, it's great. I'm a. We're. I, I held his hand as he died, but then I started to go, man, we've got to, we got to do something about this road to Jericho. We, we. And so we really began to focus on gun violence as one of the things that we're addressing. Um, I mean, even in the pandemic, Peter, our our gun deaths have uh, both suicides and homicides uh, are the highest that they've been. Um, uh, in, in um, I mean, in Philadelphia, it's the highest it's been in the history of our city, and that's true. You know, really throughout our country, gun deaths really are the sad. num. The, it's the number one cause of death of our children now, more than cancer or car accidents are. Are uh, is is gun violence, and so that's why we say you know you can't be pro life and ignore gun violence. I mean, th- oh, this absolutely. this is crushing so many. Uh, people made in the image of God. And now, you know, the number one cause of death, of kids. So we got inspired by the prophets, Micah and Isaiah. And they, you know, they cast this vision of beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. Uh, And they, they, you know, at the end of that text, it says people will live without fear. We will study violence no more. But it's this image of literally transforming metal that's been crafted to kill into metal that's been crafted uh, for life uh, uh, swords into plows and we said well we don't have a lot of swords in america but we've got more guns than we have people so we invited people to donate those our first donated gun was an ak-47 a little over 10 years ago and we turned it into a shovel and a rake and we've been doing it ever since so now we, we there's a whole national network that we call raw tools which is war flip backwards just in case oh, you, I love can, that. you may miss that you know that's cool so uh yeah and that's what we're doing we're, we're flipping war around we're we're turning guns into <clears> garden <throat> tools and art and we're also like doing the hard work of uh, sometimes my, my partner in this work mike martin that i wrote beating guns with uh, we wrote a book together but he says The easy work is the blacksmithing, you know, the transforming Mm -hmm. of metal. But we're also doing the hard work, the spiritual work of trying to um, address the heart issue and the culture Mm. of violence. Um, So, you know, when people say it's not a gun issue, it's a heart issue, we like to say it's both. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. it's a policy crisis, uh, gun violence, is, but it's also a heart crisis. And, And, you know, Dr. King understood this so well. He said a law cannot make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, a, a law is not gonna change a violent heart or a racist heart, uh, but we can make it harder for people to kill folks or even, you know, to take their own life. So we're trying to see it as both.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Can, can I ask some questions about guns and whatnot? I, I, you know, a big part of being a fellow traveler, that concept is being charitable. multiple views and differing opinions and whatnot and I'm thinking from the perspective of a person who like who really loves guns in a recreational manner like do you think that's redeemable that whole the whole using guns recreationally well you know
1: just to be real clear I grew up with guns you know I grew up Mm -hmm. in East Tennessee uh uh hunting with my grandfather my wife was, was and still is, goes hunting with her dad, you know. Uh, so we grew up really comfortable with guns. Uh, and what's interesting is, I think uh, there's an old saying, where you sit determines what you see. And, you know, I think when I began to, to live in North Philly and see the tragic cost of, of uh, gun violence, I mean, almost every corner of our neighborhood has a memorial Uh, to the lives lost there It, it begins to feel very personal you know and i think that's why proximity makes a really big difference uh beginning by grieving the 110 lives lost every day to guns and here's the interesting thing peter is that like what i'm encouraged by is a vast overwhelming majority of gun owners in america want to see change happen uh And I mean, up to 70, 80% sometimes of gun owners want to see some policy changes when it comes to things like the capacity that guns can shoot, you know, um, like AR-15s designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. So do we really need those uh, on our streets? Um, There's a whole coalition, bro, uh, that we work with of, uh, hunters against assault rifles. It says on the back of their shirts, you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. Uh, you know, and, and so there's, there's gun owners that are concerned about gun violence that want to see like a limit. One of the laws that we're trying to pass in Philly that uh, like an overwhelming number of gun owners want to see is called one handgun a month. So it doesn't even do away with the right to own a handgun. It just says there should be some limits. So like 12 handguns a year. per person right like who needs more than one handgun a month
0: that they're purchasing buying more than that
1: (laughs) oh heck yeah they are and who's buying more than that uh people that are not making the world safer and many of whom are making a whole lot of money off of selling handguns so that's why people say there's some common sense changes that we could make right of of simply um those sorts of things um and and you know i think there's many other ones domestic abusers that um, the, you know, there's a pattern that if you are abusing people in your own family, um, it's a strong indicator that you might hurt other people outside your family mm-hmm. or that the people in your family that are victims of domestic violence might become victims of domestic homicide. So it's just kind of seeing those red flags and um, saying, what can we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to save every life, you know, but we can certainly um, make it easier uh to save some lives i mean think of cars you know all the things that we've done around cars which are not designed to kill but they can be deadly so we've done all kinds of stuff you know um you've got to pass a test you've got to show that you can drive a car and um and and you know if you abuse your right to the car you can lose that license Mm -hmm. uh you know all the speed limits even you know as technology changes we've got you know, texting and driving laws. We've got airbags and seatbelt laws, all these things that we've done to try to protect life. And I think that we should have the same kind of um, logic when it comes to guns. You know, what, what are some things that we might put as safeguards in there? Um, uh, there's a minimum age, you know, to driving. And I think uh, uh, young people 16 to 21 years old are responsible for a disproportionate Amount of uh the gun violence, so you sort of go, you know, you can't buy a beer to to your certain age. Maybe, you know,
0: maybe you, you can't have a gun. You couldn't yeah. be
1: able to own an assault rifle. Yeah. You know,
0: so yeah. So you still think that recreational use of guns is is like an appropriate use of guns? And
1: I'm not here to judge, folks. Man, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that I think that like for me, the the play the place that I would like to see us all is heartbroken by the Mm -hmm. by the lives that are lost you know and and really concerned because i think if we really are broken over grieving that it's kind of a call to action you know yeah for sure because it really doesn't have to be this way i mean you look at so much of the world and people say well what about you know mental illness what about uh, you know violent music and video games the thing is you know every every country in the world has folks that um you know, are playing violent video games and, and, you know, folks that are racist or prone to violence or have mental health struggles. But what's unique about America is this kind of um, unrestricted access to, to uh, guns that can do so much Mm -hmm. damage. So, you know, an assault rifle in the hands of a sinful person um, can do a lot of damage. And I think a lot of the world recognizes that, you know, and um, so yeah, I mean, I also think it, for those of us that are choosing to follow Jesus, there's other questions that, you know, are raised. I, I, I think that mm-hmm. the gun and the cross give us two really different versions of power. And yeah. one, of them, one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. Mm-hmm. And there sort of comes a point for me where we've got to choose the, between those, you know, that it becomes yeah. really difficult to love our enemies as Christ commands and simultaneously prepare to kill them. You know, you kind of go like, I, I, am not sure that, um, you know, Jesus carried a cross, mm-hmm. not a weapon. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that, that should also um, reorient kind of how we think about those things, you know? Yeah. So
0: uh, I, yeah. I have a question about um, Jesus because this, this has been on my mind because, you know, I love the, that people are recognizing the nonviolence of Jesus. I think there's one, there's one scripture I always struggle with when, when he's telling his disciples to get uh, that. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And how how have you grappled with that?
1: Well, I I think that, uh, you know, he goes on to say that, that this, this is going to divide some people, you know, and as much as we grieve the division in our country, there are some things that are worth taking a stand on, you know, and I think that's what Jesus is kind of saying is that um, if you're going to choose to follow me, there's going to be some folks that it's going to have repercussions, you know, Um, sometimes your parents are not going to like it, or your in-laws are not going to like it, or, you know, like it's Thanksgiving dinner is going to be awkward sometimes, like if you're really taking the gospel seriously. Um, So, you know, I think it's really clear that He's, he's kind of talking about that type of division, you know, rather than um, that he actually came to carry a sword to kill some folks or to hurt people, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, when there is even a text where um, he says, uh, if you've got a sword, bring it, you know? And yeah. I, be- I believe it's so clear that Jesus is kind of airing the dirty laundry, that there are people in that crowd even his own disciples who are still holding out this logic that this is a violent revolution, Mm -hmm. that we, we need our swords that Jesus Mm -hmm. is going to re you know, it's going to be that kind of um, uh, of uprising. And so what's interesting is if you look right after that text where Jesus says, if you've got a sword, bring it. Um, If you don't go get one, you know, he's kind of like, like, Kind of stirring this up and putting it out in the open. Um, Peter, his own disciple, picks the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and he actually uses the sword, right? He, mm. he cut, he, he, he um, defensively, you know, he stands his ground and he cuts a guy's ear off and Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, Put oh. it away. If mm. you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he picks the ear up and, and heals the guy that Peter wounded. And yeah. the early Christians, They were absolutely stunned. Mm -hmm. Uh, Folks like Tertullian, Tertullian, you know, one of the early, he said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Mm. This was the final, this was the final triumph over the logic of redemptive violence. You know, if Mm. ever there was a case for using violence, we're good to try to protect Mm -hmm. the innocent. I mean, Peter had the best book there. You yeah. know, the best case there ever was. Even
0: self defense. <laughs> it's even a case of self defense. Yeah, so like, exactly.
1: Yeah. So you know, I, wow. I I believe that this is exactly the point. You know, um, and, and in fact, you know, there is the prophecy that that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. You know, that there are those violent folks that were were learning the way of Jesus. You know, they're learning yeah. that the cross is an alternative to the sword. Mm. Um, and 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 that's why Jesus, when he's being crucified, when he's being, you know, he's kind of on trial, he said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would be fighting, uh, be yeah. using violence." Mm. Uh, so it's actually a distinctive mark of the movement mm. of Jesus: nonviolence.
0: You know, yeah. Jesus
1: is the Prince of Peace. Uh, it's not so just I one
0: interpretation. That. Like, I like think a lot of people think, oh, well, that's one interpretation of Jesus. It's like, no, you can't really understand Jesus without the nonviolence, without the non-retaliation, without the enemy love and blessing. You know, yeah,
1: like, no, I, I believe this is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of the prince of peace, right? Wow, Jesus yeah. said, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemy. I mean, this is some of the most uh, distinctive teaching, different from so many other faiths that we would love our enemies that we would wear evil down with love that we we would actually not return. And, and it, you know, it doesn't get any more uh, clear than when Jesus is on the cross. Yeah. That he shows us that God is willing to die, but not kill even to the point that Jesus loved his enemies so much. He died for them and said, Mm -hmm. um, father forgive them for they know not what they're doing literally he's dying with love and mercy on his lips Mm. and he's exposing violence putting violence on full display
0: yeah
1: to subvert it with love forgiveness and an empty tomb so i mean i think this is the very um as scripture says jesus is the full revelation of god i mean this is Mm. god on full display and Mm. it becomes so clear Uh, that God is nonviolent, that Mm. God is choosing uh, to die rather than to kill. Uh, And and the early, this is what's so interesting, Peter, is the early Christians got it. I mean, for hundreds of years.
0: At least 300 years. Yeah, (laughs) you
1: don't see a single Christian defending violence. And they were so comprehensive in how they understood it. The early Christians spoke against violence in every form it had. In their society, uh, they spoke against the death penalty. They spoke against military uh, service and combat. They spoke against um, uh, the gladiatorial games, which they saw yeah. as this sort of glamorization, uh, uh, glorification violence, of yeah. violence in their world. Um, they spoke against abortion. You know, they 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 were they they spoke against everything that was crushing the image of God.
0: Mm-hmm. And- Everything that was against human flourishing. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So I, the, the newest book that I've written, it comes out next month. I'm not sure when this Ooh. podcast will come back, but it's called Rethinking Life. Wow. And and it's about this kind yeah. of uh, comprehensive ethic of life. Uh, and, uh, you know, because the last couple of books I've written have been on the death penalty and on gun violence, very specific issues. And I wrote them because I thought on these two issues, gun violence and the death penalty, Christians have not been the biggest champions of life. In fact, Mm -hmm. we're the biggest gun owning demographic in America, and we're the biggest supporters of the death penalty, uh, in spite of, you know, uh, having the victim of death penalty at the heart of our faith. So, you know, but I wanted to like build a foundation and a you know kind of zoom out a little bit from just the issues and to say what does it really mean to be champions of life so that's what you know rethinking life is about
0: wow that, that's great and it was really helpful for my understanding i wanted to talk quickly about um christian nationalism because that's been a huge discussion in the past few years like it's now we just had the second anniversary of that unfortunate day january 6th 2021 um and you've done a lot of work with trying to bring to light what is uh, Christian nationalism? How is it hurtful? How does it not helpful? And I was wondering if you could share a few thoughts on that. What, what, what is Christian nationalism?
1: Well, I, so maybe it's helpful to, to, it's become sort of a, a, um, a phrase Buzzword. that we hear, we hear, well, we hear it a lot, but mm-hmm. we don't necessarily step back to unpack it. So yeah, first of all, the word Christian, let's just take that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it means Christ-like, right? That, that's yep. what Christians are meant to be. They're to mm-hmm. remind the world of Jesus. We're to be living our lives, um, uh, you know, totally oriented to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why, you know, things like January 6th are so problematic to, I, I would hope to anyone who calls himself Christian, because there was nothing Christ-like that happened uh, about the insurrection and the attack on the capital. You know, so there may have been Jesus signs uh, that were there. Um, people that had T-shirts and bumper stickers that said Jesus, but that wasn't Christ-like. It wasn't loving. You know, um, that that's what Jesus said. They will know that you're Christians uh, by your love, uh, and we know what love is like. Um, uh, so, so that's what I, you know, I think is is so problematic. Um, is that sometimes we throw the word Christian around and it loses uh, it's the, the, the fact that it, it's, it's meant to be Christ-like. So that's the litmus test for anything. Does it look like Jesus? Uh, does it feel like love? You know, and we know that love is, is kind and patient and scripture says it doesn't, you know, it doesn't envy or boast. It's not rude or arrogant. And yet that's exactly kind of what I think we saw on full display on January 6th. And it's about orientation towards power. That's what a lot of this is about, you know? And so we see a very different um, uh, orientation of power in Jesus than I think we see among a lot of folks who would call themselves Christians that are really trying to uh, fight for power. Um, so my friend, Tony Campolo, uh, who I've, you know, I'm partners with, he's he's uh, up in years these days, he's in his 80s, but he, he said, you know, um, Uh, this this beautiful line he said when you try to mix Christianity with political power it's kind of like trying to mix ice cream with cow manure it doesn't do much damage to the manure but it ruins the ice cream you know and I think that's what we see when Christians are fighting for power you just don't see Jesus doing that I mean from the moment Jesus was born it's an emptying of that um the, the the political power right i mean power he's born and
0: privilege wealth even yeah. his freedom jesus was most likely a slave up until 30 years old as some mm. historians have noted
1: yeah i mean he's born with brown skin as a refugee born in a manger no room in in the end you know i mean every mm. part of his came from a town where people said nothing good could come uh you know died on a cross which uh many that's why many of his own disciples were like yo die kings don't die kings kill you know (laughs) like we're ready for a revolution not a martyr you know yeah Um, where's david yeah so you know uh this is about power but then let's just talk a moment about nationalism right um nationalism is i think when our love is confined right to our uh, to the people of our own country and I've always thought, you know, a love for our own people is not a bad thing. But if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we, we have this whole idea that we are to be born again, right? That we're to love bigger than nationality. We're to, we're to love bigger than ethnicity. We're to love bigger than biological family. That's why I think as you look at Jesus, it's very interesting in the Gospels when he talks about family. Um, You know, they say your mother and brothers are here. And he says, who is that? You know, like we've got a bigger sense of family. You're not ready to be my disciple unless you denounce your own family, right? Unless you are born again. So Mother Teresa had a beautiful way of saying this. She said, sometimes the circle that we draw around our family is too small. And that's why I think biological family can be a barrier to the boundless love of God. Uh, nationalism can be a barrier um, because we can believe that our people are more valuable than other people or that God has a special love for America. But in fact, the Bible doesn't say God so loved America. It says God so loved the world that we're to love with that kind of love that says if someone is suffering on the other side of the wall on our southern border, it's as tragic as if that were my own grandmother or my own daughter. That's what I think it mean, means to be born again, um, is it, that we say this person is made in the image of God just as much as my own child. Um, mm-hmm. And it's radical to think like that. you know. Yeah. It confounds the sort of barriers, the circles that we put around our family. But I mean, goodness, you can't read the gospel without seeing that. Uh, the, that, that God, that Jesus is really, um, extending our love beyond the kind of mm. boxes that we put it in. Yeah. And that's also why nationalism is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's becomes this us and them, um, that, uh, uh, becomes so toxic. So, you know, when, when we try to mix our faith with nationalism, uh, it, it becomes this, uh, uh, really combustible cocktail that we saw, you know, on January six
0: in a, in yeah. a really
1: really tragic way.
0: Yeah, they didn't just come from nowhere, did it? And, and you know, it's what's so difficult about this discussion is that it comes down to um, semantics so often. It's like, well, what do these terms mean, you know? And I I've interacted with some people or and especially if you go down south like if you say oh i'm a christian i believe in christian nationalism they're like oh okay that's not that tracks but if i said that up here in massachusetts people would look at me weird like what do you mean like that's weird um, so like depends on where you are too but also there are some people who consider themselves christian nationalists but and they're i think a lot of times they're well-meaning and what they mean by it is they they want to see christians in power uh in political power uh, affecting positive change for society and i I think when it comes down to it, we don't have to be nationalists, right? We don't have to be nationalists in order to affect positive change in society.
1: Like- yeah. And there, there, you know, there's some other deeper layers of this that are so important. Um, uh, we, we've we got a whole coalition that we work with called Christians against Christian nationalism, hmm. because it's so important to <clears throat> realize it speaking out against, I like to put the quote marks around Christian, you know, but the Christian nationalism, if that's what hmm. we're going to call it, like, um, is not to be against Christianity. In fact, I think it's just the opposite um, mm-hmm. that this is uh, a theological heresy. Um, yeah. And, and, and not only is it a threat to our democracy, as we saw on January 6th, but Christian nationalism is a threat to Orthodox Christian faith. And um, the gospel. Yeah, to the very heart of the gospel. Uh, and and to really recognize it is that you know America first. Mm-hmm. That that's not the gospel. Like the the gospel is the last or first, right? Like Exa- we're, we're to really care about widows and orphans, the least mm-hmm. of these, those that are most vulnerable in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, when we welcome the stranger, the immigrant, the refugee, like we're welcoming Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, Scripture says when you welcome the foreigner, you might be entertaining angels unaware. So mm-hmm. this is very holy work. And you mm-hmm. see like a, a very different gospel uh, it, with a little g, you know, in, in the, the nationalism. So things, there, there's indicators that um, many folks are doing that help us like put a finger on it a little bit. But things like, do we believe that America has a messianic role to play in the world, right? Like these are kind of really important questions. Do we believe that the founding documents of America were actually inspired by God? So I think those are some things that like, they help you like um, uh, sort of get a handhold on it a little uh, bit more, you know what I mean?
0: What's the word? Um, It starts with a D, discern, discernment.
1: Yeah. Discernment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, Dr. King said so well, don't let anybody make you think that America is God's messianic force in the world, uh, the policeman of the whole world. I think what happens is if we aren't careful, America begins to be the center of everything rather than Mm -hmm. Jesus. You begin to see, you hear very little about love. I mean, if you listen to the the nationalists uh, speak, there's very little about love. And that's, every, that's, that's exactly what Jesus was about. All the law, like everything <laughs> is summed yeah. up into this. Love God and love your neighbor. So yeah. if it doesn't sound like love, if it doesn't smell like love, then let's not call it Christianity. If yeah. it's not about welcoming the immigrant, caring for the sick, uh, visiting those who are incarcerated, uh, like that's not Christianity because Jesus mm-hmm. says in the end, Uh, We will be asked, like, when I was a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was in prison, did you come visit me? When I was hungry, did you take care of me? So that's really, you know, the the real manifestation of our faith is how it impacts the most vulnerable people in our society.
0: Mm, Wow. Yeah, it is really disconcerting seeing a lot of big name Christian theologians and speakers and influencers writing books about christian nationalism how it's something that we need to pursue and and it is an ongoing discussion and i'm still trying to figure out like what how does it how what is the future of all this you know <laughs> it's it's going to be really yeah. interesting to see how it all works out
1: i think it's also very important to say that there is a a a a, a part of this that has to do with race as well mm-hmm.
0: yeah um, that
1: that we might be uh it's it's good to call it white Christian nationalism too, because there is a, a part of this that um, surfaced during the Trump era that um, was much bigger than Trump. But what happened was we began to see after the first African-American president, the changing demographics of America, a lot of white folks began to be uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to, to this this sense of what's often named as white fear or white fragility, or we might even call it white nostalgia, right? That we want to go Mm -hmm. back, make America great again. To a time that uh, didn't exist. (laughs) Really means make America white again, right? And some of this is about the changing demographics of America, um, Mm -hmm. holding the reins of power. These Mm -hmm. people are replacing us, right? All of this, even how we talk about history, so there are some white Christians that I think are more shaped by whiteness than by Christ likeness, right? They're being mm-hmm. discipled by Fox News more than the Sermon on the Mount. Um, mm-hmm. And this, some of this is not about left and right. It's about right and wrong. And I don't yeah. have any political affiliation. Um, I'm very critical of some of the stuff on the left just as much as the right. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I like, I mean, we wrote Jesus for president saying our hope is not in the donkey of the Democrats or the Mm -hmm. elephant of the Republicans, but our hope is in the lamb of God. It's in Jesus. And, uh, you know, but you look at Jesus and you see, um, some things that, that really should, um, cause us to care about the versions of Christianity that, um, don't sound or look like Jesus, and you know yeah. as you as you as you look at the, the the white Christian nationalism, some of this has been around a long time. Oh, you know, yeah, Fre- sure. Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass said, "Between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land, I see the widest possible difference." <laughs> you know, and he said, yeah. "I love the Christianity of Christ. I'm just not so sure about the Christianity I'm seeing right now." That uh, you know, so hurtful to women and he, i mean he called yeah. it the, the the slave holding women whipping cradle plundering christianity so we can call anything christianity but if it doesn't look like jesus and mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't sound like love then uh it, it's not true christianity
0: yeah christian nationalism sounds like jumbo shrimp to me you know what i mean it's it's, it's an oxymoron because christianity is a global historic movement all over the world so yeah. like if, if people really i don't think know if they that they they know what they're asking for when they say Christian nationalism. If you're serious about that, what it really is ends up looking like is Christian globalism in a way. Like, because if Christian nationalists take themselves seriously, take Jesus seriously, it ends up looking like, oh, well, he says the first shall be last. So that means we gotta put ourselves, our country last in the order, the pecking order of the world. That's gonna look like um, you know, working together with other countries. That's gonna work look like. Um, decreasing your military spending that's going to look like it's going to look like a lot of things that people who call themselves Christian nationalism don't actually want so it's a great contradiction
1: you know I would say to everyone I mean whether they you know no matter what our relationship is to this strange uh, phenomena of Christian nationalism just keep going back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount I mean we you know we've got this movement we call red letter Christians that Mm -hmm. is you know we get our name from the bibles that highlight the words of jesus in red and we're saying what if jesus really meant the things he said so you know um no matter who we are i think uh it, it's 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 helpful to keep going back to the sermon on the mount and uh it was mahatma gandhi actually who said uh, i love jesus he was asked about christianity he said mm-hmm. i love jesus i just wish the christians acted more like him
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know it's, it's really going to help our witness in the future of the church. If we take Jesus seriously, because so many people saw what happened on over the four years of that administration and January 6th. And they're like, whatever Christianity, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. And I get it. I get it. I get it completely.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the good news is that the land, the spiritual landscape of what God is doing is much bigger and much more beautiful than these kind of distorted versions Mm -hmm. of the christian faith and please you know every religion has people who have uh opportunistically distorted the faith for their own agenda that have Mm -hmm. used their the faith uh to perpetuate hatred muslim Mm -hmm. there's muslim extremists that have we're very familiar with um there's jewish extremists um if you go to hebron you can see the bullet holes in the uh, wall of the Ibrahimic mosque there where um, uh, a Jewish settler you know, opened fire on Muslims during prayer. So wow. no religion is immune to that kind of hatred. Mm-hmm. But that's why we've got to keep coming back to love mm-hmm. and saying that um, at the heart of all of this uh, is love. And And there are so many beautiful expressions of Christianity outside of the most toxic ones. So I think one of the things that we've got to do is not allow the uh haters to hijack our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to to say that if you're leaving Trump evangelicalism or Christian nationalism, it doesn't mean that you have no place to go. Like there's a beautiful landscape in the historic black church, in the charismatic mm-hmm. uh Latino church. There's like Ah, uh, versions of the the Catholic and other traditions that have this incredible, comprehensive ethic of life mm-hmm. that is beautiful. Yeah. uh so, um, For sure. you know, I sometimes say, if you go to a bad concert, you don't give up all music. You know, exactly. And I think yeah. In some ways, there's people that have heard a bad version, but sometimes they've experienced a version of Christianity that's actually done real harm. Mm-hmm. You know about. A bad concert doesn't leave wounds, usually, you know, yeah. but like this is this is real that people have experienced mm-hmm. harm from oh, some yeah. versions of Christianity. So um, but I believe, you know, the the answer to bad religion is, is not no religion, but it's good religion. It's faith that yeah. does look like Jesus and sound like love.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For anybody who's uh, listening and interested, you should definitely check out. Um, the book of common prayer for ordinary radicals. Did I say that right?
1: Yeah, man. You can go to commonprayer.net and, uh, you know, see it just uh common prayer is, uh, it was a beautiful project, man, that we, we've I been doing, doing for 10 years. And folks can also go to our website, red letter Christians and mm-hmm. check out more of, uh, what we're up to. We do, we do prayer, uh, on the first day of each month together from common prayer too. So folks can join mm-hmm. us on the first of each month too.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I love the uh, what inspired you guys to put together this book. I love the app. The app's incredible. I use it every day.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, Well, what we saw was that there are folks who can use prayer as um, a place to escape, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, like, like all the thoughts the, the you know the preachers and the politicians after every mass shooting who offer thoughts and prayers mm-hmm. um without action so we really wanted to be people of prayer but also people of action and um so the the book has got prayers for morning and evening and midday prayer prayers for special occasions prayers to dedicate a house uh you know prayers that someone shot in your neighborhood um and beautiful prayers, you know, prayers before a meal. Um, but then there's also throughout the year, we're remembering history. You know, we're remembering when we, um, this week we remember Dr. King's birthday. You know, we Mm -hmm. remember this month when Mahatma Gandhi was killed on his way to prayer. We remember when we dropped the Hiroshima bomb, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, when we give, gave, you know, women, when women earned the right to vote, all these things, when Mandela got out of prison, you know, all this stuff, mm-hmm. so we're keeping our prayer rooted in the world, not seeing it as a kind of a way to escape from the world, but we get on our knees and pray, and then we get off our knees, and we continue to organize, mm-hmm. uh, there's also <laughs> like 50 different songs in it, you know, from over yeah. the centuries, and so, uh,
0: there's some yeah. really cool ones, There's one called gaure it's a really beautiful song. I looked it up. There's this band that plays it and I didn't know about it, but it's like a, it's like a Middle Eastern Christian folk song, which is super cool. Or it's like yeah, O oh Sky or something. Yeah.
1: yeah there's some super yeah.
0: cool ones. The word, the term that comes to mind is integration. You're, you're not creating this, uh, you know, a lot of times we think of our spirituality, like uh, muffin tins instead of like a loaf, you know, totally, and Jesus, dude, yeah. Jesus wants us to think about it as like a loaf of bread with, and the yeast that we add into it eventually takes over the whole loaf. It's like prayer is not about escaping. It's about a call to action. It reminds me of the, the Catholic worker, ora e ora labora, or whatever they say.
1: Ora e yeah, yeah. labora.
0: Pray, prayer and work, you know, um, energizing yeah. ourselves for action. Yeah, dude.
1: Yeah. We, and we, 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 um, you know, you look at Jesus and his longest prayer uh, recorded in the Gospels is in John, and he's praying for unity
0: you know, praying Mm -hmm.
1: that we would be one as God is one. But one of the things that we learned as we did common prayer, Peter, was that there are over 30,000 denominations of Christianity. (laughs) Yeah, We've divided over all kinds of things, you know, and some Mm -hmm. of our denominations started because we were on the wrong side of racism, you know? So we've got to, so it's that unity that we're praying for. And we, you know, red letter Christians, we say uh, we're harmonizing, but not homogenizing. I like so, that. you know, yeah. unity doesn't mean uniformity. Oneness mm-hmm. doesn't mean sameness. But that's why we've got all these different songs and prayers. Um, it's kind of like a symphony, you know, and a symphony is yeah. beautiful because of all the different instruments. <clears throat> it's not as beautiful if you have a symphony of all French horns, you know.
0: Yeah, what's beautiful, I, get, I think of that beautiful vision in, in Revelation 7 when you have all nations, tribes, tongues, ethnicities gathered around jesus worshiping and you notice how in the eschaton it's not um we all just become a homogenous one It's us like eschatologically god is not colorblind he's hmm. he's interested in a diversity of expression of his image even even into the age of ages even into eternity which is really fascinating which means we really have to honor it now
1: yeah that's right and i mean you look at the Uh, we juxtapose the Tower of Babel with Pentecost and the Mm -hmm. Tower of Babel Mm -hmm. is all about monoculture, you know, the people Mm -hmm. trying to uh, use their own power and the sameness. And then Pentecost is all about the diversity of God Mm. working in unity. So diversity is most powerful. Um, I mean, mean, that, that unity is most powerful in the context of diversity. And, you know, you look at Corinthians when it talks about you know, we're all one body with many parts and it, it, it ends up, we, 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 if you look at the end of that though, it's very interesting. It says the parts of the body that have been dishonored are given special honor. So my mm-hmm. friend, Alexia Salvatierra, she calls it God's affirmative action that God's <laughs> giving special honor to the parts of the body that have been dishonored. And, yeah. um, Wow. I think that that's so important in our world right now especially as there's this kind of um, clash between all lives matter and black lives matter and you go now what we're just saying is that you can't say all lives matter until you can be particular that black lives matter that native mm-hmm. lives matter that yeah. the people that history has tried to crush are given that special honor you know that we're able mm-hmm. to affirm what history over and over has denied uh so
0: yeah man it's, it's good that's amazing and, well, thank you so much shane are there any any things we're looking forward to you said you have a book coming out soon
1: yeah dude got rethinking life uh uh reclaiming the sacredness of every every person that's the subtitle mm-hmm. it comes out and um i just got my first copies of it so it'll be out wow. any, anytime and uh we're always doing stuff you know getting guns and chopping them up. We've got open <laughs> shop days. That, so folks can check all that out at rawtools.org. But but uh, you cool. can follow me on socials. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook yeah. and uh, yeah, dude, always down with a great conversation like this. Thanks bro.
0: I'll stick it all in the, in the show notes. So feel free to cool. check that out people. Well, Shane, uh, I can't thank you enough. This has been an incredible uh, conversation. I really hold these conversations dear to my heart and like love to listen back and, Um, I hope, I pray that God blesses you and and that you continue to do this great work and led by the spirit, so on and so forth. And hopefully, I'd I'd love to come down to Philly and and visit sometime.
1: Come on, man, I'll take you out for a (coughs) cheesesteak. Oh, yeah. yeah,
0: I love cheesesteak. All right, brother. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath, it's not an easy path. But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust